Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. Well, this morning... We are continuing in our series in the Red Letter Challenge, and if you're new with us, just a real quick introduction. During Lent, these 40 days leading up to Easter, we've been participating in the Red Letter Challenge, and the Red Letter's part of that refers to how some versions of the English Bible print the, let- the words of Jesus in red so that they really stand out. You can see where Jesus is the one speaking. And the idea with this challenge is to take the words that Jesus says and put them into practice, practice, actually do them in everyday life. And so we've been following a book that's been giving us readings as well as a, a tangible everyday challenge. And as we go through this challenge, there are five themes, five areas of focus that begin to rise up in our life following Jesus. And those five themes are being, forgiving, serving, giving, and going. And so each of the weeks our message has covered one of those themes, and we've already covered being, as in being with Jesus, so that the things that we do would come out of an overflow of what Jesus has filled us with. We talked about forgiving and how a beautiful and amazing and difficult forgiving can be. Last week we talked about serving and needing the eyes to see those who God has put in our lives whom we can serve, particularly those who the world considers the least and the hurting and the lonely. And I'm so proud of our church as we served yesterday corporately along with many others in our community as a part of the Hope for the Homeless walk. And it was a a wonderful display of unity across so many different segments of our community. And I just pray that it is a launching pad toward addressing our need in our county for transitional housing for the homeless. And I'm proud of you, us, that we're saying yes and standing to be a part of that. Today we're moving into giving. And you may have noticed that there was a, a major labor dispute going on with Major League Baseball. And so it, it has been resolved. And so opening day is coming. It's almost upon us. And every time I think about opening day in baseball, it reminds me of collecting baseball cards as a kid. And, and I would take all of my allowance and the money that I would earn. And every Sunday, we would stop at the Evergreen Drugstore in my hometown. And I would purchase baseball cards or, if it was a big week, a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle action figure. (laughs) But that took a couple weeks of savings, and I wasn't always that patient. But I loved these baseball cards. I loved looking at the pictures. I loved looking at the stats. I would get those three-ring binders and the plastic sheets that had, you could fit nine cards on one side. And if you used both sides, you could get 18 cards on each of these sheets. And I, I, every time I'd get new cards, I'd have to reorder them all because I loved to keep the players alphabetized by last name. And then I'd have the teams and my favorites being in the front of the book. And so right there was the Yankees right up front. And you know, I grew up in Colorado, and so I didn't know that you weren't also supposed to like the Mets. And so the Mets were were right there with the Yankees. Like, I guess that was weird. I didn't see a conflict, but I guess you all kind of have some issues. I don't know. But there they were. 
And I loved those cards. And I'd have friends over, and we'd trade them, and we, you know, it just was so much fun. And, but I remember very clearly learning that baseball cards had monetary value. I remember learning that collectors would sometimes pay significant amounts of money. And so I remember one of my friends had what was a, called a Beckett pricing guide. And Beckett is still one of, one of those companies that's valuing baseball cards today. And so I remember he brought it over one night when he came to spend the night. And we went scouring through all of my cards and looking up their value. And it'd be like, wow, two cents. <laughs> And I remember my most valuable card I found that night was a 1987 Kevin Mitchell, who played for the Mets, Tops card that was worth a grand total of $3. That was my big win. So monetarily, my baseball card collection had like no value, but it had incredible value to me. I treasured it. I loved it. I delighted in it. And I treasured in that whole set. And that's what we're getting at today. As we move into this practice of giving, it's really a question of what is it that we treasure? And so I invite you to to hear from Jesus as we read from Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. If you want, you can follow along on the screen. But listen for Jesus speaking into our lives this morning. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray as we move into this word together. Heavenly Father, will you send your spirit among us to speak into the deep places of our hearts and our souls to shape us. May we not be resistant to how you would work but may we be your people. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, I want to acknowledge that you may be here going, man, I have not been in church in a while, and really? Really, we're, we're talking about money? And, and I, I get it. I understand the frustration because I understand that there have been a lot of years where churches have had a very unhealthy focus on money. And churches and church leaders ha- have given good reason for there to be suspicion as you look at the evidence. But I'm telling you, this morning we're talking about this, and this theme is a part of the Red Letter Challenge because Jesus talks about money. 
And he uses money as an illustration to teach more than he uses anything else because Jesus, as he uses it to demonstrate what the kingdom of heaven is like, understands that money affects our entire being. And if you don't think so, try having none and see how it feels. The stress that comes not just in your mental anguish, but your body and your spirit as you struggle and are overwhelmed. Money affects us whether we want to acknowledge it or not. And it certainly reveals some very important things about the state of our heart and our soul. And so Jesus in this passage says, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and vermin destroy. And I just, I I love that word vermin. Like, just take a second and say to the neighbor next to you, vermin. I mean, vermin. It's just fun to say. But it's it's really a disgusting image, though, isn't it? It's so vivid. And it's clear what Jesus is getting at. Everything you buy and the money that you have is eventually going to be destroyed. And we know that it's true. We know the age-old adage, you can't take it with you when you go. So does it stop us from trying to have it while we're here? Not usually. I've got binders of baseball cards at my house right now, storing up this treasure on earth as in plastic so that we can preserve it just a little longer. We store up all sorts of things. Just look at the evolution of closets over the last 70 years. 70 years ago, the master bedroom had a three-wide closet adequate for both. Now we've got walk-in closets, we've got drive-through closets. (laughs) When closets aren't big enough, we put stuff in the basement. That's not enough, we put it in the attic, we put it in the garage, and then that's not enough, we need to get storage units. Right, we store up all sorts. Jesus knows our tendency is to store up because, well, you'll never know when we'll need it. But perhaps the real question is, did we really need it in the first place? And if it's not just about physical stuff, We certainly have a deep desire and focus on storing up plenty of dollars in our bank accounts, in our 401k plans, in our mattresses or coffee cans, however it is that you store it. Why do we store up so much? Why do we need bigger and bigger barns and storage units? I think part of the answer is right here in the middle of the passage in that weird image, which seems kind of like a disconnect, doesn't it? A non sequitur when Jesus moves from clearly talking about money to talking about the eye as the lamp of the body, and then he goes back to talking about money. What is he getting at? And it has to do with with the understanding of the eye in Jesus' day. It was thought that the eye actually had an illuminating power to it. So rather than the light coming into the eye, it was thought that the, the eyes actually projected out light illuminating the world, and so you could actually focus the light on whatever it is that you wanted to see. And so that, whatever you were focused on, would not just then come into your eyes and your brain, but into, ultimately, Jesus is saying, into your heart. And he's saying, healthy eyes make it so that you see bright light. You focus, and there's good things that come in, and things are clear as they're meant to be, but unhealthy eyes It's dim light. It's unfocused. You struggle in the darkness, and it's darkness that comes in rather than light. It is blindness that leads to a darkness of the heart. What he's getting at is when we focus our eyes 
The question is, will what we see be clear or unclear? Let me give you, a, a, it works kind of like this. I've got a picture for you here. This is a beautiful picture uh, of a beach at sunset. You probably recognize that. This is just the normal picture. But on the next slide, we've got two pictures, and, and they, a filter has been applied. And the one on the left, there's a blue filter that's being used. And, and on the right, a rose filter is being used. And you can see with the one on the left, you basically lose the glory of the sunset when you have a blue filter. When you have the rose filter, you lose the detail of the waves crashing on the shore. So go to the next one. And you can see in the middle, you get the clear picture of how it's really meant to be. You get the glory of the sunset and some of the detail of the waves in front of you. And this is how it works. Filters will determine what we see and what we appreciate about the picture. And our eyes become a filter that filters what enters into our lives, enters into our heart, into our core, into our being. And so Jesus is warning us about fixing, fixating our eyes on treasure and wealth and money. Because when we fix our eyes on these things, it will lead us to a distorted view of how life is or even into blindness itself. And we can become blind to so many things. And maybe the first thing we become blind to is actually the enormity of our wealth. Andy Stanley is a pastor in the Atlanta area, and he has this incredible statement. He says, it's funny. Rich people are in denial. And normally we're not in denial about things we know. For instance, he says, tall people admit they're tall. Short people admit they're short. Athletic people admit they're athletic. Artsy people admit they're artsy and that they don't mind telling you their car is a mess, their room is a mess, their life is a mess, and they're as happy as can be. Introverts don't ever mind telling you they're introverts, and extroverts can't wait to tell you that they are extroverts, like they really needed to tell you. But when it comes to rich people, he says, they won't admit it. They live in denial. No, 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 no. I'm not tall. You know, I'm six foot one. I, I'm, I'm, really, I'm, I'm above average, but I'm not tall. Especially, I love basketball, so I'm not tall. Right? We, we start to downplay it, start to skirt around the issue, but here's the reality that the vast, vast majority of Americans are incredibly rich. At a global level, statistically, the average income for an adult globally is just over $23,000 a year. That includes all of the billionaire and millionaire earners, the average adult. And so if you're making over $23,000 a year, then you're, hey, you're above average. If your household makes $59,000 a year, you're in the top 10% of the world. So if we took 100 people representative of the makeup of the world and you were in that room with them, if you make $59,000, you have more purchasing power than 90 other people in the room. Let's pause for a minute. Am I tall? Yep. Am I rich? Hmm. See, when we focus on money, We can become blind to the enormity of the wealth that we already have. And perhaps the fact that we live in denial so much of the time is is actually the wake-up call that Jesus wants to give us. 
That perhaps we actually have a greater focus on money or wealth than we ever realized. Perhaps our eyes are less healthy than we ever realized. Because we become blind to the enormity of our wealth, become blind to what we have been so blessed with, but we can also become blind to, dare I say it, our own greed. I mean, if greed is about a self-interested desire for more, do we desire more for ourselves? Do we act in accordance with that desire to secure more? Maybe it doesn't blind us to greed. Maybe it blinds us actually more to our lack of generosity. Because if we've got more wealth than 90% of the people, how much do we give away? And and here's the thing, when we focus on something a lot, it's a lot harder to give it away. When we focus on money a lot, it becomes a lot harder to give it away. And part of it is because we're keeping track of it, right? I think this is why Jesus says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. He's specifically talking about when we give money to serve those who are truly poor. He says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing because your left hand wants to keep track. It wants to calculate. It wants to keep score. Make sure that you don't give away too much, but make sure you give away enough to look good in other people's eyes. And so don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Just let your right hand give. We can become so blind that we ultimately end up serving the thing that God has given us as a tool for life, as a resource. Growing up, my dad had a number of of lessons that he taught us about money. One of those was when you want to know why decisions are being made in the world, follow the money. Another one of those was money is just a tool, a necessary one, but just a tool, a tool to live life as God has given you to live. And when our eyes become unhealthy, the tools become the master. We start to serve money rather than simply use it. And we see this show up in our lives in a number of different ways when money and wealth become our means for significance, for instance. We do whatever it takes to make more. And when we make more, we feel more important. We feel more significant. I mean, think about it. We categorize ourselves as a society in terms of our net worth. Is that not language of significance? And we could do a heart check to see if we have our, any of our significance tied up in money and wealth. We can do a hard check. How do you feel when you're with folks of significantly different economic means than yours? When you're with somebody who makes, obviously, a significantly amount more than you do. They have much more wealth than you do. How do you feel? Do you feel uncomfortable? Do you feel awkward? Do you feel lesser than? Are you looking up to them with a, a sense of envy and desire? Man, if only I could. Are you able to be you, simply you, just as you are, the same in a palace as you are at home? We can, we can ask the same question in reverse when you're with those who you know are particularly destitute. How do you feel when you're with those who are truly poor? Do you feel a sense of relief? Do you feel confident? Do you feel a little better about yourself and your situation? Do you look down on them? Or maybe you just pity them. And the thing is, pity may have more to do with feelings of superiority than it does with compassion. See, because compassion literally means to suffer with. 
And so a compassionate response suffers with, enters into the suffering with the other. Pity, a pity response is grateful. Man, I'm so grateful I am not in their position. Man, that must be so hard. So is there a significance perhaps that we're attaching to our financial position in relation to others? And Jesus is saying, be careful. You may be blind to how much wealth has become a source of significance for you. And maybe it's not about significance, but maybe it is about security. See, because money does help, doesn't it? It gets things done. Money opens a whole lot of options to you that you don't otherwise have without money. And with options, there's control. And with control, there's security. So how much money would you need to feel secure? We can think of it in a different couple of ways. We can think of it in terms of savings, and we can think of it in income. A survey that was done last summer, on average, Americans said that they would need $516,000 in savings to feel secure, on average. And 20% said more than a million dollars in savings to feel secure. If you think about income, average American says, I need, a, I need to make $128,000 annually to feel secure. The median household income in America is $67,000 a year, which means there are a whole lot of people making less than what it would take for them to feel secure. We have a whole society of feeling insecure. Could we be blind to the fact that we can make money our source of security, of control, And maybe it's not security or significance for you. Maybe it's just about how you can have pleasure and happiness in life. I just want to have enough to to have that boat or to take that vacation. Just look at how, how we are buying in together. Look at social media for a second. Because it seems like we've bought into the idea that if you're not able to go to this particular destination and to take this glorious photo with you and you're always happy, never grumpy family because, you know, traveling with family is never stressful. <laughs> Maybe if you have lots and lots of money, it's not. I, I don't know. But, you know, we, we have seemed to have bought into this idea that, yeah, we can't take it with us when we go, but man, I need a lot of it to actually enjoy life now. 81% of Americans say they will feel truly free when they are able to spend however they want. That's how 81% of Americans have defined freedom. And Jesus is warning. He's warning us so clearly. Don't make money and wealth the source of security, of significance, the means through which you can enjoy and be happy in this life. It's really dangerous territory. Which I think is why Jesus switches the image from the eye, and then he says this. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. See, God is the one who can give you lasting significance, security, and enjoyment in this life. But when we are unsatisfied with God as the source we may turn very quickly to money and wealth as the source because it seems to promise us significance, security, and enjoyment. And so we will begin to serve wealth like a god. And the problem becomes in that is that we can never have enough of it, can we? 
Serving money and wealth as a God will always lead us to insecurity. Because what if, what, what if, what if we run out? What if things turn? What, what if go, things go sideways for us and, and, and we don't have what we need to take the next step? And Jesus, Jesus moves so quickly from this idea of serving as a master to talking about worry. Because if it runs out, does that not bring worry and anxiety? What if? And see, Jesus is saying you can't serve both. You might be worried and anxious because you're trying to. You can't serve both God and money. Money is a miserable master, but a pretty good tool. We're invited to take the tool of financial resources and store up for ourselves treasure in heaven where moth and vermin cannot destroy rather than this treasure on earth. Now here's the thing, Jesus doesn't tell us exactly how to do this or what this exactly looks like because actually, literally, in the original language, what Jesus says here is he says, treasure for yourself, treasure in heaven. He doesn't just say store it up. The word actually is, the verb is treasure. Treasure. How can you make yourself treasure something? You know, because if you don't like baseball, if you really hate baseball, you will probably very quickly get bored with my baseball card collection. Right? You, I, I know you'll, you will be patient and you're good people and you'll be kind and you'll listen for a little while, but internally you're going to be like, okay, let's wrap this thing up, especially after the 17th page of the first of five binders. <laughs> right? Right? Yeah, and so if you don't love baseball, I'm not going to be able to make you treasure Baseball cards. How do we make ourselves treasure something? And I think this is part of where the problem with the the messaging around money in the church has come in. Because the messaging about money in the church for so long has been, okay, everybody, give it. And give more of it. And whatever you gave last time, give more than that. And this has become the message of the church, but what it betrays is that the church has bought into the same lie that money is the source of significance, security, and enjoyment. And that's not the message of Jesus. Simply give more. Because it's not about just giving more, it's about treasuring. When it's just about give more, we can easily start to think, okay, I gave to this, here you go, God. A little bit of money. Score, treasure in heaven. A little bit over here. There's some more for me in heaven. Things are going pretty good today. I'm feeling good. I've got my piggy bank in heaven. And when I get there, I'm cashing it in. That's not treasuring. Because how do you act when you're treasuring something? You become obsessive. Like my baseball card collection. When it's a person that you treasure... What do they need to do for you and do to make you treasure them? Nothing. You can simply spend hours and hours of your time doing nothing, and it's not a waste. It's not work. It's delight. It's enjoyment. It's treasuring them. And out of an overflow of your treasure then comes the words of affirmation and affection, comes acts of service and kindness, comes just the delight of holding hands and walking wherever it would be. It's all good. Because it's treasuring. It's not work. But so often this is our approach 
to money, particularly when it comes to giving. Whew, man, I got to work. We work so that we can pay the bills at home. We work so that we can pay God's bills. And I don't know about you, but I don't go around looking at my water bill going, you know what, I think I'm going to give a little extra this month. <laughs> of course not. We do this, though. We come to giving. How much is on my bill, God? What do I need to give? But when we treasure a person, we get to know them. They inspire us, they awe us, they wow us. It moves our hearts in such a way that our actions then simply become natural to treasure them. And the same is true with God because what's the treasure that we're treasuring in heaven? It's God himself. That's the treasure we are to treasure in heaven is God. And so we learn from, we know him, we delight in him, we are awed in him, we are wondered by him. We find the fact that, man, he can be our source of significance, security, even enjoyment in life. And this happens as we gaze more deeply into the incredible, costly, generous love of God for us. God, God is not stingy. He does not sit around and go, what's the bare minimum I can give these folks? It's all about abundance. The fact that you are alive is the abundance of God's love for you. The fact that you're breathing today, abundance of God's love for you. The fact that you have security when the day comes and you are called home, abundance of love and security. The fact that though you have served other gods, including wealth and money, seeking in it your significance, your security, your enjoyment, and yet even still, God did not abandon you. He did not leave you to fend for yourself, but instead, he gave his son for you. God gave after already giving, he gave even more. And Jesus is the reason that God loves you. And he is the reason that that love will never be taken away from you. Because it's not about your performance being good enough or worthy of it. It's about the costly, generous love of abundance that God gives you through giving Jesus Christ his son. But how much did he give? Jesus didn't sit down and calculate, you know what, hmm, they're worth about 10% to me. They're worth about 90% to me. He gave his entire life on a cross for you, his emotional, mental, physical, spiritual life for you so that you could know that God loves you. It was costly, it was generous, and it's more than we can ever really understand. And the more we contemplate that reality of what has been given to us, our hearts will move. The more we contemplate how unworthy we are of his love, our hearts will move and we will begin to treasure the treasure in heaven. Not just put treasure in heaven as if it's a transaction, but that we will treasure the treasure of heaven and then our giving will be a natural overflow response to the costly, generous love of God for us. And it will align as a reflection of his giving. See, when we start with a message on giving, it's easy for you to just kind of check out for the whole time, and I get that. You may have. But it's really easy at the beginning to just sit there and start to contemplate, hmm, how much do I need to give? What's the number so that we can just move on from this topic? 10%? Many, many followers of Jesus say 10%. That, that's known as a tithe that comes out of the Old Testament. It's this idea of giving 10% right off the top. This was part of the relationship of God with his people. 
They gave 10% as an act of faith, an act of trust, a way, it was part of the way that God cared for the greater community of the people was just to give 10% off the top, but that was just the beginning, even in the Old Testament. Then there were offerings on top of the tithe, and many of those were voluntary offerings, just out of the joy of being in a relationship with God. And so it's really tempting for us to try to zero in on a number. Maybe it's 10%. And for most of us in the room, 10% would be a radically generous gift. But see, when we start contemplating the number, we start calculating it down to the bare minimums, and it doesn't reflect the generous gift of God for us in Jesus Christ, the sacrificial gift. We give as our hearts are moved to treasure Jesus Christ then we will begin to give as a reflection. Our, our giving will be generous. It will be costly. It will be sacrificial. Because, and it won't be work. It will be joy. It will be delight. It will be overflow because we will know that we are that loved by God. And so as we enter into this week on giving in our Red Letter Challenge, don't forget your being week that we had a couple weeks ago. Don't just move right into calculation mode trying to figure out what the minimum is so that you can store that treasure in heaven, but instead reflect deeply on the costly, generous love of God for you in Christ Jesus and allow that to be the thing that moves your heart to begin to treasure the true treasure of heaven, Jesus himself, so that what you give comes as a natural, delightful, treasuring overflow of love for God. And I think it will be costly and it will be sacrificial, and it will be generous, and it will be pure joy when we give as Jesus gave himself for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that we are unworthy you gave. You gave more than we could ever really even imagine and understand. You gave your son, Jesus Christ, completely and wholly, his entirety of his life, What a gift for us. Lord God, we acknowledge that we have treasured so many other things in our lives. And we have sought to serve even wealth and money as a source of significant security and enjoyment. That that's where our treasure has truly been at times. And yet, God, we also acknowledge the anxiety and the fear and the insecurity that comes along with that. And we want to be delighted and we want to treasure you above all. And so, Lord, will you move our hearts As we contemplate deeply what you have done for us in Jesus Christ, may our hearts begin to move and melt and be lifted up that we could treasure you above all. In Jesus' name, amen. As we are about to receive communion, let us affirm the key tenets of the faith by saying the Apostles' Creed. And um, as we get ready for that, I just want to say that near the end, it mentions the Catholic Church, and we're, when we say the Catholic Church, we mean the old root meaning of the universal church. That's what we mean by that. Please join me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven 
and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Friends, as we prepare to come to this communion table to receive the grace of God at the costly price of Jesus Christ, His Son, remind you that this is not our table as pastors. This is not the Presbyterian Church's table. If you have put your faith, you have put your trust, if you treasure the gift of God in Jesus Christ as your only hope, then you are welcome to receive His grace for you this morning. Let's pray as we prepare to receive.